Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight we're in the ninth lecture called The Bear Enters the Middle East, Israel, the USSR, and the Cold War of uh, 53 to 56. Um, first we start by, it's a very interesting topic obviously, um, but a very complex one. It's uh, Churchill famously said Russia was what, an enigma wrapped in a riddle or a riddle wrapped in an enigma or something like that, and it's all true. And when it comes to Jews, it's particularly the case. Um, historically speaking, R- Russia, um, who we'll see is not as anti-Semitic as people imagine, the people, but Russia uh, always had a very complex and conflicted attitude, I've said this before, towards the Jewish people, and that fact remains till today in the end of the year 2013. Conflictedness defines the attitude of the Russian people, in particular the Russian government authorities, towards the Jewish people. What the heck do you do with these people? Should be nice, should be not nice. Should be this way, should be that way. They've never worked out in their own minds what is the proper strategy, even though Russia is usually very clever. It was in the time of Catherine the Great in the 1700s that Russia, in the late 1700s, that Russia conquered uh, Poland, most of it, and uh, advanced its border westward and uh, took up a whole lot of territory. And as I always like to put it, but with the territory came a booby prize, which was the largest Jewish community in the world and the most Jewish Jewish community in the world. At the time, she took over uh, Poland which was in 1770s, 1790s, that's when the Hasidic movement exactly was, was exploding. And they had the Vilna Gaon and those types running around. No, that's very intensely Jewish. And Russia, by this time, under the Tsars, had turned into a very top-down, um, autocratic type of situation due to Russia's history, the way they've always had to develop themselves in defense against uh, neighbors. And uh, they real militaristic kind of society. And what do you do with the Jews? You see, what do you do with them? They know that the Poles who lived in the Russian Empire are just going to be a hostile group towards them and they're going to have to, you know, eat it. But what do you do with the Jews? Uh, they're so different. Um, Russia, historically speaking, had an attitude of we, have, we don't want to have anything whatsoever to do with any Jews. They are not allowed into the country. That's a famous story that went on for hundreds of years. Even Peter the Great, who tore Russia by the roots and forced it against its will to go into modernity, said, I can't let the Jews in, that'll, that'll, everything will blow up and I'll, I'll have a revolution on my hands. You know, the, the, the Russian people, for religious reasons primarily, never want to have anything to do with any Jews, and all of a sudden they've acquired this huge Jewish population. And for the next hundred years, um, the different czars of Russia, such as uh, Nicholas I, Dachaleria, and his son Alexander II, and the ones after them, ever since then, the uh, Russian rulers zigzagged in their policy towards the Jews. Should they be nice? Should they be nasty? Should they try to force all the Jews to convert? Or should they let the Jews be alone and, and, and be left alone in their own little uh, world of ideas, like Hasidic groups or something like that, and then, then they're harmless? Should, they, um, should we try to weaken the Jewish religion, which is the policy of this guy, that uh, real so-and-so? Uh, and, and, and try, or, as he says, maybe that's not a smart idea because if you weaken the Jewish religion, they might not do the right thing, which is become 
of full enthusiastic Russian Christians, they might become socialists and communists, which of course happened, and revolutionaries. So uh, what's better, uh, keep them uh, uh, dumb and Jewish <laughs> in the shtetl, like fed on the roof, or have them become revolutionaries who blow up the, the, the Tsar's palace and uh, kill their imperial family. It was a Jew who led the firing squad that shot the Nicholas and, and Alexander in the basement, you know, with the kids. Uh, Yurovsky, uh, who, yeah, so who, who, his parents were religious, so he obviously broke away. Well, that was a smart move on the part of Nicholas II, wasn't it? If he would have left the family and the whole Jews alone, he probably would be causing trouble to somebody in Shul rather than, you know, sh- shooting rulers in the, in the palace. Uh, Nicholas II and Alexander II were uh, rulers under whose time the, the attitude was, let's try to integrate as much as possible the Jews into the society with the hope that they'll completely convert and Russianize. And so they were uh, uh, drawn into public schools, into the universities, into uh, the professions and all that. Um, but always with the proviso, once you get your MD, that, or let's finish this way, once you get finished medical school and you pass all your exams, there's only one thing left before you get your MD, you have to convert. You know? And it's very hard. Somebody put in eight years of medical school, and then you find that out. It's very hard to resist uh, converting. But then the type of person who converted, what is he? Right? What, what, what do you call that kind of person? Uh, I'll tell you one name you call that kind of person, the grandfather of Lenin. <laughs> Somebody who has you know, all kind of issues with the Jewishness and the Russianness, all the rest of it, then it comes down you know, through the family, the children, the grandchildren, you end up with real mixed up people and toxic and poisonous personalities that uh, you know, end up destroying Russia. It's an unbelievably uh, conflicted story. And as I say, as we'll see, this went on throughout the 1800s and went throughout the 1900s and goes down till today. The Soviet Union, as we'll see in a second, can never 100% decide what its policy is towards Jews. They didn't want to go exactly to Hitler route. On the other hand, they kind of sympathized with it. On the other hand, they wanted to portray themselves as a forward-looking and democratic. On the other hand, we all know the Zionists are out to take over Russia and rule the world, and, you know, and, and, and Israel's a mortal threat to the Soviet Union. On the other hand, they're not. You know, they, they, they can never work that out. And um, grown men like Brezhnev, it's crazy. You read the Politburo stuff that's coming out now, they're having actual discussions how many pounds of matzah were baked by the Jews in 1972. You know, this is, the, the KGB supposed to give us figures on that. I mean, this is crazy. You see, it's very complimentary to Matzah, but it's, 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 but, it, but, but, but it's crazy. They can never, you know, see it in its real proportions. And even today, uh, when you have Putin in charge, who's like a mixture of all these guys put together, he's, Putin's a little bit of Catherine de Grey, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and a little bit of Bugsy Siegel, you know. So <laughs> he says, when you mix all that today, you know, Putin on the one hand, he like is an extreme right-winger and kisses up to the you know, fascist types over there. On the other hand, he'll give Lubavitch some of their books. On the other hand, only they can only read the books in Russia. You, you, you understand? I mean, it's very, it's, it's paradigmatic of the whole conflicted nature of the, you know, he, he'll meet with the chief rabbi and all the rest of it. On the other hand, they'll close down the rabbi they don't like. It's, it, it, it's a nutty world in Russia. It's not the right place to live, although a lot of people don't agree with me, obviously. Now, um, this conflictedness expressed itself in the czarist period when all these people were ruling Russia in the following crazy situation, now before we get to him, let's go back to the Tsars for a second, in the following crazy situation, and that was that I just told you before that there's Russia and then there's the territories they conquered from Poland. The Jews were compelled until 1917 uh, to stay out of Russia. They could only live in the territories conquered from Poland. So if you want an American analogy, imagine if the Jews in the United States were not permitted to live anywhere outside, for example, the South, or if you wish the Northeast. 
So the Jews can live in their it's a territory, it's New York, it's Pennsylvania, it's Maryland, you know, that's where most Jews are living anyway. But no Jew is permitted to live, you know, outside, beyond the Mississippi River, for example, or in the South. Um, you have to spend your whole time over there. Uh, is it your country? It is and it isn't. It's, it's, it's a geographic example of the conflictedness that I just described. You know, you are living in Russia, you're not living in Russia. Uh, but the Tsars wouldn't have it any way, because on the one hand, they really didn't like the Jews. They were very personally very anti-Semitic, very much. Um, they really regretted that there were any Jews living in Russia whatsoever. If it was up to the Tsars, all the Jews would move to America. They had no problem with that whatsoever. There was no such thing as stopping the Jews in, in, in the time of the Tsars from moving elsewhere. That's why many of your grandparents did that. Okay? The, the Prime Minister of Russia very famously said in the 1880s, the door to the West is always open. <laughs> you know, can you leave now? Tomorrow? <laughs> Please? Um, and yet... You know, didn't, there were still too many Jews left in Russia. I wish they had all moved to America. There were still many Jews left in Russia, and it didn't work out well. Then came the revolution, as we know, in 1917, and Lenin took over, and when, uh, the first rule of communist Russia, obviously. And Lenin also very conflicted towards the Jews. On the one hand, he uh, was uh, very strongly opposed, genuinely, to anti-Semitism, and uh, any idea of discrimination whatsoever against the Jews is, uh, is a, a capital crime in, in Russia. On the other hand, What's the definition of Jews? Any Jew willing to be a communist. See, if you kind of convert to communism, now you don't have to convert to another religion, because communism is not a religion. But it boils down to the same thing. You give your total allegiance to communism, but as long as you do that, you can be the prime minister of Russia, like, like, like Trotsky. You understand? You can rise to the top. So here's a country where never in its history did the Jews, a Jewish Jew ever, ever, ever have any shot at getting anything Right, that was like a basic part of the rules of the game in Russia for many, many, many centuries from day one. And all of a sudden, overnight, after 1917, all the big members of the Politburo, besides Lenin, not all, many of them are Jewish. Uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev and Trotsky and this and that and the other. And uh, Trotsky, for crying out loud, made the Russian army. I mean, you can't imagine a more traditionally anti-Jewish institution than the Tsarist Russian army. And even the American army is not great, but the Russian army is like the Russian army. And here, next thing you know, the head guy is a Jew, but of course Trotsky's not really a Jew. He's totally converted over to communism, but he can say, I never converted. I didn't you know, go through a baptism or something like that. And so it's very, very uh, complicated over here. So basically, Lenin, when he takes over Russia, declares war in all religion, including Judaism, and they did stamp out Judaism. I mean, kill the, the, the religious Jews, the rabbis and stuff like that. Either shoot them in the back of the head or send them to these uh, labor camps where they died, you know, that way. Uh, that's true. On the other hand, if you're not religious and you're willing to go along with the new ways, then there's no problem. You can become the head of a factory. You can become the mayor of a city. You can become, a, you can become I'm sorry to say, the head of the NKVD and shoot people day and night and uh, torture people and things like this. And um, by the time you get to Stalin, who's the ruler, of course, after Lenin, uh, when time you get to Stalin, all the middle level and, uh, and, and the entire middle level is heavily dominated by Jews of the government. The, you know, in all the ministries, in all the uh, affairs, uh, the Jews are, I'm, I'm sorry to say, the Jews are very heavily involved in uh, the torture chambers and the concentration camps, and as well as the foreign ministry and the economy and the military. They had Jewish generals they were from, from top line. So the Soviet Union is like a very funny kind of business. And one of the rules is that, you know, you can be as Jewish as you want as long as you're not Jewish, okay? In other words, you better not be Zionistic, you better not be interested in religion, you better be interested in anything Jewish, kacha per se, but as long as you want to be communistic Jewish, that's okay. You understand? That, 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 that's how it goes. And um, prior to the Second World War, 1920s and 30s, Stalin, for example, very heavily used, 
Jews throughout the government, throughout the administration, for the simple reason that the Jews were relatively educated, they were literate, um, they had a certain uh, b- basic level of skills, which the Russian regular Goyim, the peasants, hadn't yet uh, uh, done. Stalin, however, was planning that you know, a generation will go by and then we'll get rid of the Jews once we, once we put a whole generation of Russians through college, basically. Then we'll have the people we want, blonde hair and blue eyed, and we'll get rid of these Jews, and that's what he did. Okay? Now, um, the, of course, the Second World War showed up right in the middle of all this long uh, process, and when the war came, Russia, of course, was shaken to its foundations because Hitler and Stalin each cheat each other, but Hitler turned out to cheat him better, and so he surprised attacked Stalin during the Second World War. During the Second World War, Stalin uh, was willing to use anything to win. Why not? And, and if the Jews are out there, that's one possible pawn among many. And he agreed that they should set up something called the Jewish Committee, or specifically the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, which is the first time they ever had it's like a hush of a committee of Jews as Jews. But after all, it's Hitler, and we all know, because Hitler says to himself, that this war is mainly against the Jews. Hitler even said that Stalin is a tool of the Jews, which is a ridiculous idea, but nevertheless, everybody knew that. And, and, and Stalin wanted to get um, traction in the USA and in England, specifically in the USA, and he used the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee to say, Hitler is fighting a war against the Jews. The best way Jews can help to crush Hitler is to help Stalin. It's a certain argument. After all, the Red Army, as Churchill said, clawed the guts out of, uh, out of the German army. I mean, that's a fact. So it's a certain way of winning over people support over there. And Stalin did allow Jews as Jews to make appeal to other Jews and make visits to the United States and elsewhere as Jews, including Palestine, by the way, to, but for the purpose, of course, of always rallying support for the Soviet Union and, 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 and all the rest of it. Um, and so he did use, for example, Lazovsky, for example, who was a big macher in the communist movement. It was uh, and the number two guy in the foreign ministry. Uh, you can tell by the name, Shlomo Lazovsky, for crying out loud. You know, and, uh, and Shlomo Michals was a famous uh, actor, I showed you last year some uh, pictures of him doing King Lear in Yiddish. Um, these were famous figures once upon a time. Remember, American Jewry in the 40s still had a lot of people who read the forewords and the Morgan Journal. Isn't that true? You still had a lot of Yiddish speakers over here. And these guys could come and appeal to that particularly. And they raised a ton of money for the Soviet Union during the Second World War. That's just the way it went. Um, by the end of the war, Stalin was in his glory because he crushed Hitler. It's a fact. And look at this. They, I'll just before we show it, this is a famous Russian picture of the victory parade they have in June, I think, of 1945, right after Crush Hitler. And, you know, Stalin had the best talent at his disposal. And you'll see they all throw the captured German flags of all the divisions and brigades, which the Russians did crush. It's a fact. You know, it cost them $25 million, but they did do it. Uh, and they throw them at the feet of Stalin. He's, you know, the supreme conqueror of Europe, which is nothing other than the truth. Take a look at this. Can get this out. It's the Red Square, of course. There you go. Of course, Stalin's standing on the, on the stand right above that. You know, so they're all 
tossing at the at the feet over there. So he was at the height of his glory. However, he was also at the depths of his depravity. Okay, in the last eight years, from forty eight from the end of the war, from forty five to fifty three, uh, he didn't change into a nice guy. If 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 at all possible, he got worse than he was before, and and that's a tall order. <laughs> uh, millions starved to death. Here we can take a the, uh, in nineteen forty six and forty seven. Because Stalin won't raise the food uh, 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 allotment, and he doesn't give a darn, and uh, he wants the workers to go back immediately. Here he is, as you see up front. He was already older, and the guys around him really look like mafia types. I mean, and it's, it's not exactly like they look like the glorious leaders of the revolution, but that's but that's what they saw. Here's Eisenhower following them in the in the victory parade, uh, and here's Stalin, as I say before, at his most glorious moment, climbing to the uh, uh, what do you call it, the stand. There in front of the, the Red Square and the Kremlin and all that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. But the fact of the matter is, as soon as the war was over, he started getting ready for World War III. That's who he was. And uh, in that context, um, no time for replacing the burned out buildings. No time for upping the food ration. No time for fixing you know, the, the, the broken lives of people and the road system and all the rest of it, other than what you need for the industry and the military. Every penny. There's not much money in Russia after Hitler has wrecked it, and America's not going to give him any money because Russia's uh, playing uh, dirty. And so what are you going to do? Whatever money we have, we'll squeeze out of the pockets of everybody, and if it means that you have to eat, you know, half a piece of bread a day, uh, that's it. Tough luck. Who's going to complain about it? Stand up if you want to complain. <laughs> that's the system over there. I want to see somebody raise their hand who's going to complain. And, uh, and the idea was to squeeze every penny into rebuilding the Red Army and the industry. And basically, um, uh, this is what happened. I mean, I'll tell you again, there were huge famines in Russia in 46 and 47, 48. And of course, he would not admit it to anybody. Therefore, he wouldn't ask Truman for food. And uh, if the people starve, no, that's the president doing business. Um, now, also in these years, after the Second World War, Stalin goes to his most anti-Semitic um, this anti this Jewish committee I just told you about a minute ago that was operating in World War II, uh, they got a little bit drunk with power, which is really dumb and, and fatal in Russia. They thought, see, we helped the government in 1941, 42, 43, 44, 45, and uh, Stalin praised our efforts and all the rest of it. Maybe he's, ch- you know, maybe he's changing. And, and everybody, look, the whole Red Army saw Auschwitz, didn't they? They're the ones that liberated the concentration. They saw the Jews suffered so much, all the rest of it. Maybe he'll give us a shtickle break. And they uh, did something very dumb, uh, and that is uh, they spoke to Malta's wife, who was, uh, Malta was number two to Stalin, she was Jewish, and a Jewish Jew to some degree, and said, maybe you can talk to Stalin, and, instead of, and, and maybe he didn't give the Crimea to the Jewish people. Okay? And because they lost so much in the war, give them their own little country within the Soviet Union, obviously. Okay, the Crimea used to have its own population of the Tatars and the Armenians, all the rest. Oh, Stalin killed them all in the war. You know, he, he deported them. He threw them all out in 1944. So it was basically empty. And uh, that's all you need. Stalin, the very fact that somebody should even try to approach me. This is not Truman and Eddie Jacobson, you know. It doesn't work like that in Russia. If somebody tries to presume on the good nature of Stalin, that's the biggest mistake they ever made. And he freaked out. And he says, a Jewish plot. And they're trying to get me all the rest of it. And so he had the committee liquidate it. You see, I'm all shot. Uh, or, let's put it this way, this guy had a, a truck run over him in an accident, the other guy fell off the building, but by the time it's all over, you know, it's all over. And uh, there's a definite increase 
in unofficial but real anti-Semitism in Soviet Russia, especially in the years of 1948 to 1953, with the, coinciding with the rise of Israel. I mean, you, this is a well-known theme in, in the history books. Um, all the Yiddish writers are bumped off silently. No, they're never killed. They just, just they're not there. You know, the American writers come and say, where is the so-and-so and such? And says, oh, he's on vacation. <laughs> you know, he'll write to you as soon as he gets back. <laughs> Which is true. As soon as he gets back, he'll write to you if he ever gets back. The, um, uh, and mind you, the writers I'm talking about were communists. You get it? But they wrote in Yiddish. You see? And anything Jewish whatsoever makes them already trafe. Um, by the time you get also to 4053, there's the big theme of the revival of anti-Zionism. It's a key element of, of, uh, of Marxism, uh, really going back to Karl Marx and especially to Lenin, is a key element of that, that Zionism is, is a, a big of error. Okay? The Jews who want to create a Jewish state are doing something which is treasonous to the Jewish people because the whole world should be working on eliminating all nationalities, all states whatsoever. There should be only one big state for the whole world. That way there'll be no wars, there'll be no arguments with people and things like that. And the fact that uh, Herzl and people like that want to go and create yes, another state is, is a deluding the Jewish masses and, and offering them a solution for the Jewish problem which is not real and consequently that makes them anti-socialist, anti-Marxist, anti-communist and therefore the Chayat Misa. So the bottom line is anti-Zionism is one of the biggest sins in the Marxist, in, in the Leninist Marxist uh, vocabulary. Uh, Lenin, as I said before, said if, if you're Jews, as Jews, that's okay. But if you want to be a Zionist, oh my God, that's, uh, the, you, you, we shoot you. And then Golda Meir, as everybody knows, goes as Israel's first ambassador in September of 48 and is mobbed by a Jewish crowd, mobbed by a Jewish crowd in front of the shul in Archipelaga Street, you know, the, the main shul in Moscow, which is not that far away from the Kremlin. This is not done in Stalin's Russia. You see, what I just described to you is unique. There are no crowds in Stalin's Russia. It doesn't work like that unless the government set up the crowd. You follow? There's nothing spontaneous that happens in Stalin's Russia. And here, these damn Jews, right, you know, do, and, and in Moscow itself, and, you know, right in the heart of downtown, you don't understand what Navera that is, what a slap in the face Stalin perceived that as, what an insult. And, of course, his idea is no insult goes unpunished, and we're going to get them all. And when I say all, I mean all of them. The basic problem, now I'm going to explain this very clearly and pay attention. The basic problem you had over here was that um, Russia just won the Second World War. The German army got to Berlin, as you know. That means they also got to Hungary, Czechoslovakia, to Poland, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, countries like that. And the Russian soldiers, the Soviets of Milizum, saw something that contradicted all the propaganda they'd been fed for 20 years. When they're living in Soviet Russia, starving on the Kholkhoz, they were told by the movies, all the rest of it, oh, you have it much better than they have elsewhere. In the other countries, they're starving under capitalist oppression. It's terrible. So the guy's eating a half a bread, but he figures elsewhere they're eating a quarter of a bread. You understand? But it was a lie. They come and they invade Germany. They come even to Poland, for crying out loud. They come to, to you know, Romania and countries like that. Even the poor people have uh, get cows and chickens and chews. <laughs> And so forth. You know, I mean, they, they realized, you know, the, the depths of poverty they had. You know, there's the famous story of the Grapes of Wrath. In 1940, Hollywood made the Grapes of Wrath with Henry Fonda. You know what I'm talking about, from John Steinbeck's book. All about the Okies and oh, the terrible de- uh, oppression of capitalism, which it is, right? You know about that, right? The, 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 from the Depression time. It's a real indictment of capitalism. No question about it. And so Stalin said, like, oh, we'll show this movie in Russia. But what happened? They saw, they said, even the poorest people, oh, they have shoes. 
you know, it has a whole issue, but they got shoes. You see, the poor family is driving, remember, the Okies are driving to California and a jalopy. Oh, they have a car. <laughs> you follow? What you take for granted, well, here is the poorest of the poor, over there is the richest of the rich. So here what happened was that Stalin realized that the Soviet soldiers had been contaminated by exposure to the West in 1944 and 45 when they invaded these countries. The, they compared the great USSR with the European countries. Stalin freaked out. He couldn't afford this kind of talk because it would undermine the Soviet myth which he required ideologically. You see, even with all the oppression of the police state, and nobody had a bigger police state than Stalin, you still need some kind of a positive emuna, a positive ideology, so people have to believe in something to, 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 that it shouldn't look like just one gigantic lie. And it kind of worked. But now they see it's a big lie. So therefore, in the post-war period, Stalin imprisons um, a couple million soldiers who talk he revs up the secret police. He revs up the anti-foreign propaganda. He attacks cosmopolitans, which means anybody that sees anything positive whatsoever and anything that's non-Russian. And it's already the era in which they say, I guess, the Russians invented the telephone. Anybody tells me Alexander Graham Bell did it, be shot. The Russians discovered electricity. They discovered the telegraph. They discovered the train. I mean this. You understand? The automobile and all the rest of it. Oh, you believe Henry Ford? You're a cosmopolitan. Uh, shoot him. You see? So all of a sudden, everybody believes all that stuff. He promotes Russian chauvinism. Everything's purely Russian. He says, you know, he makes that famous movie. He commissions those movies of Ivan the Terrible. Why not movies about Peter the Great? Peter the Great was no good. He brought in the foreigners. You understand? Ivan the Great was a perfect guy. Very national and Russian. Uh, he was a nut. Okay, but he was within, you know, very Russian. So, uh, and most importantly, he launches, Stalin launches the Cold War. In 1946, he gave a whole speech in which he said, there's not going to be any post-war prosperity, guys. There was World War I, World War II, and we've got to get ready for World War III. The capitalism caused World War I, the capitalism caused World War II, and I'm sure the capitalism is going to cause World War III. We lost World War I, Russia did, because they weren't ready, working 24-7 to prepare for it. We won World War II because we had, under my leadership, we were working for years and years 24-7 to prepare for it, and we got to do the same thing for World War III. Okay, so this is the situation of the Soviet Union. Jews, therefore, fall into a terrible category. Because all the Jews in Russia, by definition, have relatives in the West. Right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you had parents who, back in the 1940s, had relatives that are still over in, the, in Eastern Europe? There were, even after the Holocaust. Relatives who are living better. Because you get a, a letter from Uncle Schmerl or Beryl, you know, we just had the wedding of so-and-so, and we had 200 guests, and they did this. You know, I mean, little stupid things make Jews more than the other Russians. The ordinary Russians do not have relatives in the West. Jews have no reason, Stalin says, to be anti-American. After all, their relatives have done well in America. This everybody knows. This meant they could never be fanatically loyal to the Soviet cause, to the Soviet state. Also, the preceding year, 1947, the CIA, which had just been set up, very cleverly um, had used Italian-Americans to influ influence the Italian election against the communists. You understand what I'm saying? There was a 1945... The war was over. In 1947, the communists were a big party in Italy. Uh, after fascism, you can't blame them. And then they had these big elections in 1947. And are they going to vote the communists in power or not? The Pope freaks out. And Truman freaks out. And they come up with all kinds of schemes to try to make it that the people don't vote for the Communist Party. One of the most effective was they went to all the Italians in, in New York <laughs> and throughout the United States. They said, you got a cousin Luigi back over there? You know anybody back, back in Sicily? Write him a letter. So he goes, oh, don't vote for the Communists. It'll be terrible. You know, they'll kill the priest. They'll take over the state. Believe me. You know, what you got now in Italy, bad as it is, much better than this. You vote for the pro-American party. America will make the Marshall Plan.
Italian and all the rest of it. It worked like a charm. A whole ton of millions of Italian voters voted against the communists. All this. So what does Stalin say? Jewish Americans, if they had a chance, would do that to the Jews in Russia. You see? It's, it's a subversive element. Fortunately, we don't allow any, pick, any letters. <laughs> okay? Or they allowed letters, but very dangerous. I can tell you, me, myself, and I, my father came to this country in late 46, right in this period, had a brother um, who was a scientist in Soviet Russia. And it's after the Holocaust and all the rest. I still have the letters. You write to each other in Yiddish, or he, my father wrote to him, and he said, hey, I lost this in the war, and this and this, and what's doing with you, all the rest of it. He wrote him a letter or two, but after the third letter, all of a sudden my father gets a letter in Yiddish like this. He says, I'm going for vacation. I can't write until I get, when I get back, I'll write, don't write to me until I write to you next. Which, of course, never happened. And that's because it's, no, because if the government finds out you're writing letters to America in and of itself, as a firing squad in 1947, 48, and, and, and all those years. So the CIA, as I say, under Angleton, used this tactic very heavily. This fueled Stalin's hostility to any groups with relatives in the USA. And finally, as we all know, by way of uh, setting this up, in 1952, uh, not long before Stalin died, he set up the Doctor's Plot, which include, which was, which appealed to the basic uh, primitive Russian. The doctors are poisoning the patients. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Okay? It's like a Dracula movie. Um... And, by the way, Stalin himself, who, I'm not a doctor, but he already had, you know, he eventually died of a stroke or, or poison or something like that, but he had several strokes along the way and heart attacks, so who knows how his mind was functioning. Although it was functioning, for evil purposes, it was functioning very well, but he also, you know, mixed up his delusions. Who can just imagine the jungle that was Stalin's mind? But maybe he believed it, maybe he didn't, but he said, like, the Jewish doctors are out to poison all the patients, including the elite doctors in the Kremlin. I saw on a, on a BBC thing, that Stalin, in the last year or two of his life, he had this Jewish doctor, and the doctor would say, here, take these, these pills. He'd give him the, the box of pills. And Stalin would say, thank you very much. And when he left, he would then tell one of his guards, go out, you know, for example, to somewhere out in, outside of Moscow and go to a CVS and, and get the same prescription. You get what I'm saying? He said, there shouldn't be these pills. Okay? So, I mean, this is, this is what you're talking about over here. And the result was... Then in December, November, December of 1952, um, a lady accused a bunch of uh, doctors in the Kremlin and a place like that. For, uh, uh, one guy and all the rest of them were Jewish, because uh, he wasn't even, of course, and, um, you know, poisoning the patients, all the rest of them. They get rounded up, and next thing you know, in Pravda every day, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, or as they call murderers in white coats, Zionist agents, and so forth and so on. Um, now, the irony is, the delicious irony is, three months later, Stalin is poisoned or has a stroke or something like that, but he's lying there, uh, 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 kicking the bucket, and uh, there's no good doctors. <laughs> They're all in jail. They're all in concentration camp. Uh, all he has is some second-rate, uh, how shall I put this, uh, doctors who are not of the Jewish persuasion, and uh, they're not good enough. You understand? If he would have had a specialist, they could have even got him out of that thing, because you can just imagine, he had the top, top guys. The top guys in Russia are as good as the top guys in America. The top, top guys. Okay? But not if they're in some uh, concentration camp, or, or at that very moment being beaten uh, alive to confess that they, uh, you know, eat children or something like that. And so, when time came for him to kick the bucket, there was nobody there to help him. The question is then, uh, however Stalin died, uh, which happened in uh, February, March of uh, 53, what comes next? Who succeeds Stalin? He never left the chain of command because he, according to him, he's going to live forever. Uh, and I'd like to see the person around him would ever ask him, and what do you propose to do once you're dead? <laughs> Those would be the last words ever spoken by someone. So, so uh, uh, who succeeds him? M- many thought it'll be 
the head of the KGB, you know, the Beria, who was Stalin's Stalin. He was the guy that did all the, uh, all the evil stuff over there. And Beria would have been very, very interesting because, believe it or not, in the very, very short time he was in power, he started liberalizing. He let a lot of people go from the camps. He even was good for the Jews. Uh, he put out a thing in the thing that the whole doctors thought was not true. It's really interesting what happened. None of that matters because he was bumped off pretty quickly by the others. Okay? I mean, uh, there are many versions of how it happened, but the end of the story is he's dead. Um, and so, during the period that I'm covering tonight, the early 50s, 53, from Stalin's death to 56, um, no single leader emerges as El Supremo in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Instead, you have a group. Molotov is still there. Now, by the way, Molotov was about to be shot. <laughs> there are these people who suspect that he did it. Molotov, one of the reasons he was to be, to be shot, Golda Meir had a nice conversation with Mrs. Molotov in 1948, which Stalin heard about because he heard about everything. He had the best niche system ever. And Mrs. Molotov said, Ich bin a Yiddish Tochter, I'm a Jewish girl. And that proves that she's working here. And that means Molotov, who is his n- number two guy for years, had always been in the secret service of the Zionists or something like that. But now he was rehabilitated. And his, the day after Stalin dies, his wife is brought back. And she resumes, you know, she was in the concentration camp, being starved to death one minute. Next thing you know, she's in the top of the world back in the Kremlin. And the protocol in the Soviet Union is, you don't acknowledge anything ever happened. You know, just put a little bit of makeup on to cover up the uh, rough spots. That's what it is. Uh, Bulgana was a general, Malenkov was a civil servant, and Khrushchev also was one of the big mockers. As we know, he becomes the one who takes over. Now, what does this all have to do with the Jews and Israel? Here's where it gets interesting. In Stalin's time, in Stalin's time, the Soviet Union did not focus attention and, and sources, resources on the Middle East. Because according to the Torah of Karl Marx, the Arab world was not sufficiently developed for socialism. You get it? There is a whole sheet in religion of Marxism. And it goes something along the following lines. There's an economic development, and things built to this point, to this point, to this point, to high capitalism, and then the uh, contradictions of high capitalism resolve themselves in communist revolution and the establishment of that state. So to put it in simple terms that you'll understand, you need a country like America, which is rich, developed, and all the rest of it, and uh, highly educated, that's where communism would work very well. You see? A country which doesn't have enough secular education, economic organization, obviously resources, wealth, large uh, educated uh, proletariat, and so forth and so on, that's not a country that's really good, for, it's not ready for communism. Now famously, Lenin said, Afal became, we're going to take Russia into it. Russia was not ready according to the sheet of Marxism, when Russia was very far from being ready for communism, had all this religion, had all this backwardness, and so forth. But Lenin and Stalin said, we're going to make it happen here anyway. But the other countries, they really felt would be perfect for, for this. Well, what about Saudi Arabia? <laughs> you know, how ready are they, for example, for, for a Marxist state? You see, uh, what do you, how, according to Marxism, the main element is the industrial proletariat, the people who work in the factories. There aren't any factories in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> We're going to manufacture sand, you know? <laughs> Yemen, Jordan, okay? And even to, for, for the large part, you know, uh, Egypt and, and Syria and Iraq and places like that. I mean, what are you going to do with Bedouins with the Marxism? You know, get it? And so that, since, now, culture is everything. People could do whatever they want. I'm just telling you how they looked at things culturally. And so in Stalin's time, the Middle East was looked at as a place, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not ready for it. How can you try to go into an area like the Arab world and introduce Marxist atheism? I mean, the people don't copy it. You see, they've got to go like Europe. They have to go through a renaissance and a reformation 
and then an age of reason, and then an enlightenment, and a slow process of, of, of unfolding, uh, how shall I say, secularism, to finally reach the madrigue of atheism, they should be able to understand the world in terms of Karl Marxism, and then the rest of it, how are you going to do that a bunch of Bedouins? You see? So, they'll get there, of course, but they're, they're not ready yet. This is why Stalin never made a big push into the uh, Middle East. I mean, seriously, what would have happened if he would have seized Saudi Arabia? I mean, he was the guy to do it. You know, he could have shot them all. But any other Russian guy, I'll just give you one word, Afghanistan. The Russians tried to get Afghanistan. You know what that was. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. You see? Although, to be perfectly honest, Stalin did rule Central Asia with millions of Muslims over there, and there he did shoot anybody that, that objected. But what that meant was, during Stalin's time, if you went to any of the stands, Kyrgyzstan, Turkestan, uh, Uzbekistan, and all that stuff, uh, the people hated every minute of it, but they had to smile simply because they would kill them. But he knew that they're not really communists. You, you understand? I mean, they, they, they were aware of that. Um, the Middle Eastern communist parties, because they had a communist party everywhere, is all Jews and Christians. <laughs> it's not Muslims, hardly. You get it? I showed you last week, the head of the Egyptian communist party was Kuriel, a, a Jew. And uh, in, in other countries, they're Christian. Because they're alienated. They're already, if they're educated, secularized. Uh, they can already hear Marxism and all the rest of it. The average Arab in the street. I mean, even today in 2013, 2014, you know, what are the chances of setting up an atheist state in, in uh, even Egypt or any of these other countries? Come on. So Stalin is skeptical of immediate prospects in the Middle East. Plus, he views the area as being under the subtle but steely British control. Indeed, it was precisely for this reason that Stalin backed the Yeshuv in 1947-48. Here's a wonderful picture. There, I can't see it so well, but you can. There's uh, Gromyko, you should be able to see him over there. And is, is that him? Yeah, there's Gromyko. And over here should be, that's Abahel Silver and Golda Meir and Sharet. They're all sitting next to each other, backing Israel's statehood in the, in the UN arguments in 47 and 48. And the reason Stalin did was, was precisely because, how can we do anything to stick, a, a stick something in the eye of England? You follow? And the, would the Arabs object? Yeah, the heck with the Arabs, they're a bunch of camel drivers anyway. You know, they're, they're not ready for communism. You see, maybe the Jews are. Stalin had hopes that the Jews, being westernized and secularized and socialistic even and all the rest of it, might possibly be moved into the communist sphere. That, that wasn't an impossible kind of business. But as we know, unfortunately for him, Israel did not turn out that way. Stalin certainly did not like, that's an understatement, the Ben-Gurion regime, which ruthlessly suppressed the Israeli communists. I talked about that last year. There was a communist movement in Israel, okay, led by Shmuel Mikunis, for example, Israeli Communist Party, but Ben-Gurion had this guy, this is his, his burial, you know, this is the head of the Shin Bet, Israel, which, whose main job in 1948, 49, 50, 51, 52, and 53, was to watch out and, and keep a list of all the Israeli communists, to bug them and all the rest of it, and get ready to shoot them. I don't know if you remember, I read here last year for the Hen Haaretz. Ben-Gurion had a plan, if necessary, to round these old guys, put them in a concentration camp, and shoot them. You see, he made play hardball. So, uh, obviously, Stalin didn't like that. Now, still, in Stalin's time, the USSR did not see any openings in the Middle East. And this is because there weren't any. Who were the leaders of the Arab world? Him, him, King Ibn Saud, King Farouk, uh, you know, King Hussein, Nuri Pasha. These are, obviously, anti-communists. It goes without saying. So, where, where are you going to go? And each one of them is ruling through a police system, through an army system, and all the rest of it. Well, where is it going? So you see what they call in communist parlance the objective um, circumstances necessary for the development of a Marxist reality were not present yet in the Middle East. 
Fascinatingly, it seems that there was even a slight sympathy for Israel as the USSR voted for the UN, 1951 UN resolution to open the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping. It's, it's on the record. Israel had a whole debate. Uh, they wanted to do it legally and get their ships through the Suez Canal, which is supposed to be an international waterway. And um, the UN had a whole... You know, Israel sent the ship and they turned it back and then, and then they uh, attacked into the UN and, and Russia voted that Israel should be able to go through it. That's even under Stalin. So it's very complicated to know maybe there were elements in the Soviet foreign ministry that were somehow you know, interested in Israel. It's, 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 it's a, a very complex matter. All I know is that by early 1953, uh, Israel-Soviet relations were in a nadir. They were there at the bottom. Uh, Stalin's anti-Semitism campaign was in full swing, and diplomatic relations were severed. Once they started um, arresting all the doctors and putting in newspapers that killed the Jews, and it looked like Hitler, some Israelis got really ticked off, and they put a bomb, they bombed the Soviet embassy in Tel Aviv in early of 53. And, uh, oh boy, you don't do that. And so immediately Stalin, of course, uh, broke relations with Israel, which probably he was looking to do by that point. And um, I can just tell you this, Stalin died at the right moment. As the expression goes, whenever you die is the right moment. But, <laughs> but, but Stalin died at the right, right moment. He was getting ready for World War III. I mean, we know this. Uh, some people, I mean, if you, if you, if you uh, beat up enough on it, he just ordered 100 uh, bomber squadrons. That's a lot. 100 new bomber, heavy bomber squadrons. He, he, he just ordered an elaborate, gigantic uh, air, ak you know, anti-aircraft system around Moscow. I mean, he was ready to go. You know, the guy was nuts. He was ready to go. And part of that would have been killing all the Jews. They talked about the fact that just before he died, there was a plan to take all the Jews and do the, what they did to the Tatars. Just pick them all up, drop them in the middle of Siberia, and say you're on your own, guys. Which means everybody will be dead in a week. Um, they haven't found the exact records. I don't know how that works. But it's not surprising if something like that would have been on his agenda. So you have to realize what we're dealing with over here. And Israel was in bad shape. What with the death of Stalin, which is happening again in February, March of 53, his successors immediately called off the anti-Semitic campaign and they restored diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, Molotov went back to being the foreign minister, which he hadn't been, which means Mrs. Molotov right there went back to being the foreign minister's wife. And they just said, she was Jewish, of course, and they just simply said like this, we can't ask Israel to restore diplomacy. If Israel comes and begs us, we'll say yes. So Israel did it. You know, notice if, you, if, if that's the game you have to play. So they did it. And so uh, things were, look like it's getting back on, on, on track. During 53 and 54, the USSR is unsure what to do. It's feeling its way. It's a little bit friendly to Israel, if you look at the UN votes. But it's annoyed by Israel's CIA connections. Because this is the golden age in which Israel and, 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 and Alan Dulles, when the head of the Mossad and the head of CIA are in bed together. This is when they're cooperating. Um, Israel had this whole program. Did anybody who um, gets out of Eastern Europe, for example, Poland, Romania, certainly Russia, it's very rare, other countries, when they came to Israel, they were interrogated by squads of Mossad agents plus CIA guys to ask them all kind of information of what's going on behind the Iron Curtain. You see? So in other words, Ben-Gurion was a full player, if, to the degree he was able, in the Cold War. So obviously, Russia's not going to be crazy about, about that. But what's the most important factor is the slow but steady rise to power of Nikita Khrushchev, which bodes ill for the Jews. As I'm sure everybody here knows, I assume, 
Khrushchev will emerge as, as number one eventually by 1956, 57 to be exact. And then he'll be, he'll be ruling Russia for seven or eight years as the top dog over there. And Khrushchev did not like Jews. Okay, he was very anti-Semitic. Now, Khrushchev was a Russian, but he grew up in the Ukrainian environment, right in the Ukrainian border area, mostly beyond Ukrainians. I know that to most of us who are Americans, all those people in Eastern Europe are the same, but there actually are differences between the Lithuanians, the, the, the Ruthenians, and this and that and the other. And uh, I'll tell you something very interesting. Russians by, by Teva, the average guy I'm talking about, Russians are not anti-Semitic. Ukrainians by Teva are. That's just a fact. It's kind of interesting. Jews learned this. Uh, my father and among other Jews learned this during the Second World War, or they knew beforehand. Now, I'm not talking about the czars of Russia and the government guys and Stalin and all the rest of it. I'm talking about the average person on the street. The Russians are kind of an imperial race. They always had a certain cosmopolitan look about the world. Um, and all I can tell you is, you know, the average Russian, as Russian, just by himself, you know, without any politics over there, uh, is not particularly anti-Semitic. And, um, and Jews know this. And uh, if, unfortunately, the Ukrainians always have been, going back to Khmelnytsky's time and uh, in the Xeris Tachvetat that we talked about some time ago. And, uh, and Khrushchev grew up primi- primarily in this kind of environment, not very educated or anything like that. And therefore, he grows up uh, with a lot of bad attitudes towards Jews. He particularly hates the fact, as he tells a uh, French journalist, Jews are extreme individualists. Bring in one Jew, he immediately brings in another bunch of Jews with him, all the rest. And it's all die, typical anti-Semitic stuff, some which is true and some which isn't. Uh, it's totally part of his uh, thinking over there. Uh, Khrushchev's opinions about, uh, there are articles about this, by the way, uh, academic articles. Khrushchev's opinions about the negative social aspects of Jews were indirectly disco- disclosed in his reply to Burton and Russell's uh, appeal concerning the high percentage of Jewish defendants in the so-called economic trials meaning uh, a few years later in 1959, something like that, all of a sudden there's a whole wave of trials of people who are uh, smugglers or things like economic uh, criminals with death penalty, okay? And all their names is Weinstein and Schwartz and, you know, and so forth. And Russia, of course, that was just an accident. And everybody can tell it's not an accident. And Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher, writes a public letter to Khrushchev. He says, how come they're all Jewish? And Khrushchev, in his public answer, said, well, the morality of our society is the morality of a people of labor. He who does not work shall not eat. The implication, of course, is that the number of loafers who wish to live off the labor of others is particularly high among the Jewish citizens of the USSR. Another negative feature attributed to Jews, both by Stalin and Khrushchev, was their apparent tendency for treason you see, which turned him into security risk for Soviet society and state. During his meeting with a Canadian communist, a Jewish guy, Khrushchev complained, thousands of citizens have taken tourist trips out of our country, only three have failed to return, and all three were Jewish. Now, by the way, that's the biggest lie ever. How many Russians in Khrushchev's time took a trip outside of Russia to visit America if they weren't spies or in some kind of official committee? But they lie. That's it. The communists lie and lie. That's just how it goes. You can't believe anything they say. What really lay behind Khrushchev's attitude is more complex, I would say, because the guy was not a nut. He was not an idiot. Despite their brutality, the communist leaders desperately wanted to gain legitimacy. Okay? Let's go to the next picture. These two guys, you can like Bush or you can dislike Bush. You can like Obama, you can dislike Obama. That's okay. They have legitimacy. They can sleep at night. For four years or eight years, they're in office. You can hate Obama all you want. Until 20, what is it, 2017 or something like that? He's, he's, in, he's in office. He won fair and square. 
You can like the results of the election. You can dislike the results of the election because we have a constitution and it's a legal business. Same thing with George W. Bush. Some people hate the guts of George W. Bush. But from 2001 to 2009, the guy was the president of the United States. They have legitimacy. This is something that has never been enjoyed by any ruler of Russia. Okay? They always have to be, as, as Aristotle, I think it was, Plato put about Dionysus of, of uh, Syracuse. Uh, you're surrounded by 100 bodyguards and then you need bodyguards from the bodyguards. And Dionysus at night has a has a, a a bedroom like this. You know, it's upstairs. They can only pull down with a special lever, and then he has the lever, and he climbs up, and he locks himself in the room. And uh, you know, even the guards can't get to him. And this is the tyrant of Syracuse. You see, uh, that's called not legitimacy. And the Soviet Union, they always had this problem. They desperately wanted to gain legitimacy, but as you and I know, they never really did. After all, they never did deliver the model society that they promised, which was their admitted self raison d'etre. You understand? I mean, what is the whole shot of communism when we had a revolution and we took over all the rest of it? We're doing it because we're going to deliver to you the paradise. So all the mistakes that are made along the way and all the millions of people now that got in the way is for what they call, used to call building communism. It's building the model society in which people have a car and people have a house and people have this and that and the other. So all this is justified, but he, of course we know they never delivered it. You see? And they knew the people know that they never delivered it. And so... Um, they created a police state which tens of millions of people are killed and imprisoned. None of this helps their legitimacy. They don't have what Bush and Obama and the other presidents have. Communist leaders were acutely aware of this. One of the big weaknesses they felt was in the perception of the masses that communism was illegitimate, foreign to Russian culture and to the Russian soul. Or if you want to know, the Belarusian soul or the Ukrainian soul or the whatever, the, the, the Polish soul and so forth. Communism was Jewish. After all, wasn't Karl Marx a Yid? Well, now it doesn't pay to say, well, it wasn't a Jewish Jew. To them, he's a Jew. You see? And so, what, what's going on over here? We're being tortured and suffered and crushed and this and that and the other for some stupid Jewish ideas. This is not really Russian. This is not really Polish, all the rest of it. It is also true, true, that a disproportionate number of communist officials were Jewish. Okay? So in other words, it's not really the case that Russia was a Jewish conspiracy, but there were a lot of Jews in the conspiracy to take over Russia and the other communist countries, uh, Jews including those who did the dirtiest work. All these guys were a bunch of real hilarious, I'll tell you right, right now. I mean, you know, forget Stalin, but Rakoshi was the dictator of Hungary. Oh my goodness, he killed everyone. And Kaganovich was the right-hand man of Stalin. You can just imagine what that means. And Berman was Stalin's guy in uh, Poland, and he ran all the concentration camps. I told you, Berman's brother was a member of the Knesset. That's, that's the 20th century in Jewish history. It was in the Mapam. But the other Berman was, <laughs> wasn't in the Knesset, right? He was in the, it was in the Central Committee, the Politburo of Poland, and under Stalin. You know what that means. And so um, this is all one big Jewish plot. Let me tell you something. Everybody knows this. All the historians know this. Hitler played his cards wrong. When he invaded Russia, the Russians welcomed him because he said, I'm coming here to save you from the Jews. He was just stupid enough to have a, a policy of shooting all the Russians. So that meant they had no choice but to side with Stalin. But if he would have been smart and said, I'm coming here to, to, to liberate Russia and set up a Russian state, just get rid of the Jews and Stalin, who's their agent, the Russian people in huge numbers, having suffered for 20 years, would have responded positively towards him. Okay, Even as it is, it was like a million Russians joined the German army under Vlasov. You know? So it's a, it, it is what it is. Um, now Khrushchev himself rose through his patronage of a Jew. Khrushchev was a nobody. He was from a peasant background, a miner background, you know, in the coal mines or whatever it was. 
and he wasn't particularly articulate or anything like that. And he rose to power because he hooked up with this guy, Kaganovich, who was Stalin's number three or number four. He was high up in the government, very capable Jewish ruthless guy who ran significant elements of the economy. And that's how Khrushchev came to public notice. Um, he built the Moscow subway and things like that. And his success under Kaganovich brought him to the attention of Stalin. So he had a rocket-like uh, uh, career from going from a nothing with nothing. And of course, he's totally Gentile. So that helped him a lot. And he shot all the way to the top to work with Stalin. All this made Khrushchev sensitive and anxious to prove he's a real guy. He had nothing to do with Jews whatsoever. And this was the guy who was slowly but steadily rising during the years of 53, 56. Here's Gomulka, who was a big Polish communist who Stalin was about to shoot because he was always complaining, all of Poland is being run by communist Jews. You see? And when Christoph comes into power, uh, he puts Gomulka in, in, in power. He said, get rid of all those Jews and, and give Polish communism a Polish face, as the expression goes. You see? And uh, he was just totally fine with this. To him, the right number of Jews is zero. And Anyway, this is the type of person who's rising to power. Ironically, Khrushchev's grandson was Jewish. Okay? He had a son who was killed, Leonid, who was killed in World War II, and Leonid married a Jewish girl in the 1930s. And uh, there's a famous story in the Knesset. Ben-Gurion made some kind of speech, and he was attacked by Itchimer Levin from the Agoda, and he says, you with all your Zionism, your anical is a guy, and Khrushchev's anical is a yid. You understand? <laughs> it's, a fam- it's, a, it's a famous business. Now, by the way, Khrushchev had nothing to do with his grandchild. He didn't have anything to do with the Jewish part of the family. This is all part of the very complex business. I mean, you know, go be a psychologist and figure this all out. And yet, this period that I'm talking about, 53 to 56, is called in Russian history the thaw after the uh, storm, after the ice. Stalin was the ice, and now comes the thaw. Things liberalized, according within the Russian standards, not by the American standards. No, but within the Russian standards, just not to have Stalin there alone is a bracha. And so people could be a little more artistically open, and they could be a little bit more, a, a little bit more free in what they say, and a little bit more in this. And that was considered, you know, the old line, if you're stuffed in a jail this much, then if you get jail a little bit bigger, it feels like paradise. And that's what happened over there. And it culminated, of course, in Khrushchev's famous speech in 56, in which he, he stripped the, 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 the halo off of Stalin, and he told it like it was in that, what, 20-hour speech or something like that, crazy amount of hours, in which he said, let, let me tell you who Stalin really was. He could, now, by the way, in this speech, he said Stalin murdered innocent people and did this and all the rest of it. He's always talking about communists. Get it? He doesn't bother by the fact that Stalin killed non-communists, but he said this Jewish guy or this Galicia guy was a loyal communist and was railroaded by Stalin, and that's terrible, and we have to rehabilitate him. You understand, he still was trying to work within the communist uh, jargon. But nevertheless, to, to, to admit openly that, communi- that Stalin was evil was a shocking business and a sign of extreme li- liberalism by the standards of the Soviet Union. On the other hand, he was famous as being called the anti-Stalinist Stalinist. Because he himself was a kind of... He liked dictatorship. He liked to kill anybody... Could, got in his way, or maybe in his time they just imprisoned him forever, and he liked to crush all the dissent and all the rest of it. Uh, there's a very famous story that used to be told, uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but probably not, but it's a famous story that was told when Khrushchev gave the speech, and he says, and Stalin committed this crime, and Stalin committed that crime, and somebody shouted from the huge audience, and says, and where were you when all this was happening? Because he was Stalin's number two man. And Khrushchev said, like who said that? Stand up! And nothing happened. He said, that's where I was. <laughs> The, uh, it's hard to excuse me, it's hard to extricate yourself from being such a part of such a, a large evil apparatus. At the same time, seeking to attain success in domestic and foreign policy, 
and to justify the regime, the system, which after all I told you is necessary for political survival, and which in the long run undid the regime without a shot being fired. I mean, remember, since they were not successful in, in getting legitimacy, ultimately the Soviet Union collapsed under Gorbachev and Yeltsin without a shot being fired. They died from a uh, lack of legitimacy, not from being conquered. Isn't that true? I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable. You know and I know. The Soviet Union was super powerful. They had a zillion weapons, much more than America, and they collapsed without a shot being fired because they, 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 it couldn't go on with no legitimacy. You see? Like, you know, what is this? They keep promising, they keep promising, and it never happens. So the Russian people themselves couldn't, couldn't take it anymore. You know, the Gorbachev himself closed down the store. So uh, the, the, the desire for some kind of legitimacy was desperate on the part of the Soviet leadership. Uh, people didn't understand that. And so uh, Khrushchev tries all kinds of schemes to gain successes. Now, in the domestic uh, scheme, Khrushchev had what the Russians themselves called his harebrained ideas. Uh, this was great for America. He thought he's an expert on agriculture. He knew nothing about the subject. So they spend, oh, there he is in the fields. And he gives speeches to the farmers how to grow the corn and the, and the wheat. And he had what's called the Virgin Lands Project. All I can tell you is they poured billions and billions and billions in a rat hole because he didn't know what he was talking about. And everybody was afraid to tell him anything. And it was the best thing America could ever happen. <laughs> you get it? It's, it's almost like he was a secret agent of America. He put in all this stuff. And he was a nut when it came to agriculture. He thought he's so smart. He came to America in 1959, and Eisenhower took him. He said, go wherever you want. And he went to Iowa to see the farms and all the rest of it. And he started lecturing the, the farmers in Iowa how to grow the crops. And things like this. You're telling us how to grow the crops? You don't know nothing. You see? And Cruz said, what do you mean I don't know anything? It's, it, 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 it is what it is. So in the domestic sphere, they didn't really do much. Uh, what about foreign policy? Ah, there maybe we can gain some... some, some uh, successes. And he does. And specifically in the Middle East. Maybe in the foreign policy. How are you going to do that? Breaking the encircling containment policy. Until then, you still had the good old Cold War. There's the American system. There's NATO in the, in the blue, and there's CETO right over there. Can you see it? Over there, Japan and Australia and all the rest of it. CETO under Dulles. And in the middle, they want to have uh, the Baghdad Pact, that I said, we're that way all around the Russian borders, or almost all around the Russian borders, to be American uh, allies who will hold them back. The containment policy, as they call it, this is famously associated with Atchison and Dulles, and, oh boy, maybe we can do something about breaking out of that. All of this leads to Soviet involvement in the Middle East, and especially in Arab nationalism in the years that I'm talking about. In the Marxist religion, there's no kosher nationalism and trefer nationalism. Uh, excuse me, there's a kosher nationalism and there's a trefer nationalism. There's a famous machlokis in, Lenin, in, in communism between him and him, between Lenin and Otto Bauer from, from Austria long ago. Is it possible to have a nationalism which is very Marxist and it's okay? Lenin said no, but Bauer said yes. And now Khrushchev will be playing with these ideas in relation to the Middle East. The USSR is going to champion what we call anti-colonialism. Let's back the Arabs. After all, the Arabs want to go against England and France. We don't like England and France. And if we can swing it right, they'll go against America as a colonialist power, even though America doesn't have any colonies there. What's really, um, what shall I say, what's really uh, infuriating about all this is that all the, I don't know why, all the American presidents until one, uh, let them get away with this. When I was growing up, and years like that, Oh, yeah, you know, Russia is the anti-colonialist one. They're the leaders of the third world. America is associated with these corrupt, uh, what should I say, despotic 
uh, regimes that are colonialist in nature, and Russia represents the wave of the future. When Kennedy meets Khrushchev in 1961 in Vienna, Kennedy says, can you tone down the anti-colonialist rhetoric, which is stupid, because Khrushchev says, oh, good, then we'll, we'll tone it up, you see? And all this kind of business, and all the presidents, you know, Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and Ford and Carter, they all went along with this business uh, to let Russia talk that way until Reagan came along. Russia is the biggest colonialist. They literally ruled a colonial empire uh, forever. You understand? Think about the fact, for example, that Khrushchev, when he's in power, is in charge of all the Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan and Pakistan and Shmakistan and all this stuff, you know, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and all that. These are peoples that are ruthlessly suppressed and a colonialist way by the Russians. And what about all the Asiatics in the Siberia? It's all under a, 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 a torturous colonial regime. And what about all the peoples in Georgia and the Caucasus? None of them want to be Russia. And what about Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and Belarusia and Ukraine? Ask those people. Whatever. No, it's all under colonial. So these are the biggest ones and nobody said anything until Reagan came along. He's the first guy to call a spade a spade, as far as I know, and famous. And he didn't do it fully, but he came as close as any president does. Let's take a look at the next one. Wait a minute, hold it for a second. Yeah. First press conference. Yeah, right. Well, so far, detente's been a one-way street. The Soviet Union is used to pursue its own aims. Uh, I don't have to think of an answer as to what I think their intentions are. They have repeated it. I know of no leader of the Soviet Union since the revolution, and including the present leadership, that has not more than once repeated in the various uh, communist congresses they hold their determination that their goal must be the promotion of world revolution and a one-world socialist or communist state, whichever words you want to use. Now, as long as they do that, and as long as they at the same time have openly and publicly declared that the only morality they recognize is what will further their cause, meaning they reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat, in order to attain that, and that is moral, not immoral. And we operate on a different set of standards. I think when you do business with them, uh, even at a detente, you keep that in mind. Now he's 100% right. And, and, that's, and that's not even calling a spade a spade. That's as close as any president did. They're, they're the number one colonialist, but they got away with it. Now, let's go back to the early 50s and the Soviets look at Nasser. It's very interesting. And they're not sure what to make of him. They like his anti-British policy, but they're suspicious of Nasser's ruthless suppression of the Egyptian communists. He shot them all and put them in jail. They are used to working with Marxists, and he's not a Marxist, but he is a socialist, but he's a socialist of a weird variety, what he calls Arab socialism. And, you know, they're orthodox Marxist socialists. They don't like that sort of thing. Nasser's Arab socialism is viewed by, with hostility by Moscow's orthodox socialists. Notice, according to them, this is the way, this is the way you're supposed to be socialist. There's no such thing as Arab socialism, you know. It's got to be the way we say it. But Nasser's bitter opposition to the Baghdad Pact of Dulles wins the Russians over. The Molotov remains skeptical the whole time. He said, you can't trust the Egyptians and the Arab world's not ready for socialism and they'll cheat us and all the rest of it. 
Um, the ice is broken, as I told you, I think last week, at Bandung Conference, or two weeks ago, at Bandung Conference, when all the third world leaders get together in 1955, and Chow and Lai, the of China, is the Shadchan, he says, why don't you get together with Russia, and if, uh, if you get in with them, they'll give you weapons, and things like that. Uh, it's also true that Nasser had just been spooked by Ben-Gurion, by the uh, Israeli army's Gaza raid of February of 1955, the Bandung Conference took place not long after that, uh, when Moshe Dayan and all these guys, let's go to the next picture. Uh, that's the show. We'll skip that. We'll go to the old. Yeah. When when uh, what do you call it? When when uh, Nasser, uh, excuse me, when when Dayan and all these guys launched these raids and killed a lot of Egyptian soldiers. Um, so it, unfortunately, the conditions were there for a shidduch. Um, Khrushchev and the Soviet leaders see this as an opportunity to totally shred containment. Dawes' whole policy can be torn to bits. Because if they take over, if they get in friends with Egypt and other places, there goes the, 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 you know, the, the plugging up of the hole that the West wanted the Middle East to be. They were right. Because with short, within a short time, the Syrians also solicit weapons from the Soviet Union. Why not? Uh, a process is launched, though small in 1955-56, will dramatically expand in the following years, and will make Moscow the number one supplier of weapons to the Arabs. This will lead to Soviet popularity in the Middle East, and by 1970, which is only 10 years later, 12 years later, uh, by 1970, uh, Soviet supremacy in the Arab world. I mean, I hate to say it, but if you went in 1970 when Nixon was in there, who's in favor of Russia? Egypt, Syria, Iraq, uh, Algeria, Libya, I mean, uh, over here in, in um, South Arabia, what do they call the, the uh, Western Yemen or whatever the country, Aden what used to be, Somalia, uh, even Sudan. The Russians are on top. America was the one that was in the minority, you see. So Khrushchev launched a policy which was totally successful for the Soviets in, as they say, not only breaking through but shredding to all containment. The Russians hoped to build on their popularity to eventually introduce communism. They would like to communize the Middle East. This never happened. Although the Soviets tried very hard, but they're aware that they have to tread very carefully. You see, who became the leaders of these countries? He's not interested in communism. He's not interested in communism, Gaddafi and Assad and Hussein and all the other dictator types in the Middle East. They're interested in Zikh and themselves. They want to run this Mussolini, you know, to want to set up their own dictator state. And today we need even know more about it. The truth of the matter is, uh, all three of these guys running family mafias. You get it? If you know how it works in the Middle East, it's all the clans and the different groups you're in. And Saddam Hussein had his chevra. We all now know from the news that, uh, who is it, Assad has the Alawites, and Gaddafi had his uh, shvatim. And the bottom line is, it's got nothing to do with communism, you see. They're not interested in, in, in having courses. Do you, you, you understand? You know, if, if you talk to somebody who grew up in Russia, just like you have in Yeshiva, you have courses in Yahadut, as well as a course in math, and in science, so in Russia you had courses in Marxism-Leninism. I mean, I'm serious. You know, you can't become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a writer, or anything without taking your prereqs, and some of them have to be in religion, the religion of Marxism, but you, bet you have to take the number of things. And you just have to go along and learn the jargon and write the essays and all the rest in order to pass the test. And they're not going to do this in Assad, Syria, you know what I mean? It's not what Saddam Hussein is into. Uh, they just want the weapons. Again, they want patronage of a superpower. The Russians know that they have a natural advantage in backing the Arab side of the Arab-Israeli conflict, because the Arabs are the majority, of course, and they pressed this advantage with all their might, which, of course, led them to dominate the map that I just showed you before. Everybody in the Middle East said like this, America is always on the wrong side of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Russia is always on the right side of the Arab-Israeli conflict. If, if you're the Russians, why wouldn't you push that advantage? I don't blame them. Um, 
the State Department, especially in the early years, but all through the times, tears their hair in frustration. People like Henry Byrode, who's in charge of the Middle East for dollars, says, oh, if only Israel did not exist, it'd be such a perfect world, then there'd be no reason for the Arabs to kiss up to Russia. They're not naturally, it's not a good fit. They're, they're religious people, they're not atheists, they're not interested in Russian domination, they're not interested in communism and all that business. You know, they would so much more like to go, believe me, they'd rather see American movies than Russian movies, who can blame them. The, uh, the fact is, you know, it's a natural fit with us, but the Israel, Israel, but you can't say anything about Israel because then the American Jews will get on your back. And so they, uh, the State Department guys have a lot of ulcers during these years. That's how it goes. Ben-Gurion uh, jumps in uh, in his inimical way and he says to Eisenhower, look here, you should support us because the Arabs are on the side of the Russians. But Eisenhower says to Ben-Gurion, look, if not for Israel, the Arabs would be supporting us against the Russians. You know? So don't, so don't give, give me that baloney. Uh, Dulles... John Foster Dulles is very perturbed at the collapse of containment and the cozying up of Nasser and the Reds. He becomes convinced, Israel contributes, he becomes convinced that Nasser is really a secret Fidel Castro. Okay? So, and even look alike. See, he's got a mustache, yeah? And, uh, well, I'm going to tell you something. Fidel Castro actually was a communist. And Fidel Castro was a communist agent who set up Mamish, a Russian base in Cuba. I mean, we know this. And, uh, and, and introduced the whole communist business from top to bottom. Nasser was not like that, you see? But in the 50s, it looked like he was. And so, this is a good thing. Everything I just told you, Israel should say, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> this, is a, this kept them from get, getting close with Nasser. But Dole sees this in, in totally wrong way. By the way, Ben-Gurion has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. When Nasser, out of gratitude to Cho and Lai, recognizes Red China in 1956, he crosses a major red line of Dulles. Because John Foster Dulles was a member of the China lobby. There are two Chinas, you know, there's the Mao Zedong one, and then there's the real China, the Republic of China, led by Chiang Kai-shek, as Dulles, who was um, unconscionably kicked out of the mainland in 1949 by the Reds, but he's the real pro-American China, he's the real soul of China. That's baloney, but I mean, that's what he said. He's the real soul, soul of China. Excuse me. Eisenhower and, and Red China almost went to war in 1955 over, over uh, Kamoy and Matsu, you know, these islands near Taiwan, uh, which, which, where, where Chiang Kai-shek was holding out. And anyway, all I can tell you is Dulles was very close with the Chiang Kai-shek regime. And, and America, during these years, fought successfully every single year to keep Red China out of the UN. Is anybody old enough to remember that? Every year there was such a thing, and they pulled strings, and they did all they could to line up the votes that... The, uh, you know, there are five nations on the Security Council, right? The U.S., England, France, Russia, and China. Which China? So obviously, L'Chadchila, it was Chiang Kai-shek, because when World War II was over, he was China. But then after 1949, it's a joke, because the whole real China is ruled by Mao Zedong, and Chiang Kai-shek just has a little island. No, Zaktos. He's going to recover the mainland tomorrow. That's what he called, you know. He's going to retake China. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek has a whole wave and network of informants and spies that already overturned Red China. It's a lie, but that's what the people believe. And, um, and the result is that when not any country that will vote for, China, for Red China, you know, and, and for the UN, oh boy, you're on Dulles' bad list. You see? Now, by the way, uh, this is the reason Israel passed up an opportunity during these years, right or wrong, to, have, to set up a, a diplomatic relation with Red China. Um, you know, uh, someone wanted to do it, but Moshe Sharetz like this, oh my God, America will cut us off. You see, that's all we need if we, if we, if we get together with Red China. So uh, Nasser did this. That put him on the bad list. Nasser, captivated by a modernist imagery, wanted to revolutionize Egyptian lifestyles by an Aswan Dam. This was his big project. 
He says, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a good idea. He said, the average, it's like the TWA, TVA, I mean. He says, the average uh, Egyptian doesn't have a chance to get electricity. We'll have a huge dam and it'll create electricity, be cheap electricity for everybody and revolutionize the farm life and all the rest of it. It's a noble goal. At first, Dulles supported the vision. Um, because after all, a more prosperous Egypt is less prone to be communist. It goes back to the Marshall Plan, right? Make the countries better off and then they won't be into communism. But after Nasser, Nasser cuddles up to Red China, and after Nasser, Nasser nationalizes the Suez Canal, which we'll talk about later, Dulles pulls the funding. Right? So here's Nasser set up a whole business to make an Aswan dam, cost a fortune. Dulles got the World Bank. You know, he was a rich Republican, a Wall Street guy. So he got the World Bank to say, we'll, we'll bankroll the whole thing. And next thing you know, we're not going to bankroll the whole thing. So here's Nasser, all dressed up with nowhere to go. They got all the engineering plans and everything ready. They revved up the people, and the money's not there. And so what happens over here? Well, well, Khrushchev says, oh, no, we'll cover it. No problem. And he does, right? Now, it cost Russia a fortune, but they did it to break through in the Middle East. Look at this. This is a real picture. This is Khrushchev visiting with Nasser, and you have real crowds cheering him. When does a communist leader ever get real crowds, as opposed to the renter crowd, real crowds cheering him? You get it? This is like a, a rush for Khrushchev. It's one of the things that keeps the Russians pushing the, the, the Middle Eastern button over here. Okay? And Russia succeeds in 1956, in these years, I'm talking about 1953-56, in penetrating into an area that was hitherto off-limits to America's intense frustration. On the other hand, Russia will not succeed in communizing the Arabs. It will be the old question of who's wagging the tail. Uh, when the 67 war happens, is it that Russia made the Arabs do it or the Arabs made Russia do it? You know, it's the old line. When you are supplying weapons to another country, uh, who's, who's making who do what? And a lot of times Russia will be dragged in the 60s and 70s into things they'd rather not do because the Arabs want to do it and they're their clients and they've got to do it. Don't worry, Israel does the same thing with America. For Israel, the, uh, the state of Israel, everything I've just described tonight was a disaster. After 1956, Israel will face a permanent existential threat as a result of Arab states with Soviet weaponry, which never existed before. I want you to understand, for the first eight years of Israel's existence, from 48 to 56, Israel was much more powerful, as I tried to get across to you, people don't realize that, in past the talks. Israel was much more powerful than all the other Arab armies. Israel didn't really have a big threat. It was, it was, they were always afraid that maybe some Arab leader will one day build it up, because the potential was there. But in terms of actual armies and air forces and that sort of thing, Israel had the superior uh, uh, weapons, and none of the Arab countries really, really, really had the kind of tanks and weapons it is to crush Israel. That could cause trouble, but that's all. After the Russians come in and they give them the MiGs and the tanks and the missiles and the rockets and all that business, Israel could be killed. You know, saying the first time. So this is a real disaster. Everything I described. For the first time, the possibility exists that Israel, that the Arabs will defeat and destroy Israel. Ben Gurion, of course, tried to react it by talking tough. He went around uniform. Doesn't matter what the others say, it matters what we do. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice speech. But it darn right it matters what the others do and the others say, especially with Russia giving weapons to the Arabs. Privately, Ben Gurion has nightmares and he writes panicky, panicky letters to President Eisenhower. You know, he says, oh, this is the end of the world, you have to come and help us, and this and that and the other. Eisenhower just writes back to Ben-Gurion, I told you not to attack Egypt in those cross raids and then drive into the things. This leads Ben-Gurion to say, I can't talk to Eisenhower, I've got to get A-bomb. And this is why Israel will start in 56 to go to develop an A-bomb, which they do. 
Okay, even though it's a tiny country with no resources, what are we going to do? They got Russian weapons. They can wipe us out. So we we, we, got, we got to be ready for the big push. You know, there's only one answer to this existential threat. You see, it takes Israel 10 years from 56 to 66. By 66, they get, get the first A-bomb rolls off the, the presses. So this, this is the context in which it happens. There, there is a final dimension I want to talk about. And then one of the factors egging on Khrushchev is Israel's pressing for Aliyah of Soviet Jewry, which he regards as highly insulting. Remember, Khrushchev is communist communism. The, this is a worker's paradise. This is the best country in the world. And I'd like to see somebody raise their hand who disagrees with me, you see. And now uh, you have uh, Ben-Gurion saying, we need the Russian Jews to come to Israel. And so uh, pretty soon, Ben-Gurion will set up in a... I mean, let's put it this way. Israel needs mass aliyah. There were 650,000 Jews in 1948. They took on another 650,000 Jews in the early years from the DP camps and from the, you know, the such place, the Arab countries, whatever. And let's say they took in another half a million in the 50s. There weren't that many Jews out there after all, right? So uh, Israel is, what is that? It's less than 2 million. Um, if we have a big threat, we need a population of several million. Where are you going to several million? There's only one place, or two places rather, we have millions of Jews who could possibly bring Israel's population up to, up to speed. America and Russia. Okay? So Ben-Gurion goes on these campaigns all the time that all the American Jews have to move to... Uh, to well, it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen in the 50s. Not in Ben-Gurion's time. Why would an American Jew, you know, want to go and live under the Mapai party? It's not going to happen. And so they, the U.S. Jews are not coming. Well, then what about Russia? Oh, you say communism. Ben-Gurion set up a secret department, high, top secret department. Of course, he didn't know that, that his number one uh, uh, lieutenant was a Russian spy, but he thought it was a top secret department. And, and under Shol Avigor, who was a famous uh, Mapai official... And their idea is to try to promote secretly the Aliyah. Okay? Israeli embassy people in Moscow give out Hebrew books. They, try, they broadcast to the Russian Jews. They do this, you know, this whole kind of business, which is leave Russia and appeal, you know, try to get a exit permits and, and get out of there and come to Israel, which is the real Jewish paradise. This freaks out Khrushchev and company. Right? I mean, to appeal to Soviet citizens, they should leave Russia because it's less than perfect. To him is the insult of insults, the crime of Christ. It's not like the czar, which is good, let the Jews get out. You know, it's the opposite. And so anything that attacks the official image of the workers' paradise is seen as a mortal threat, and it kind of was. I told you before, Russia eventually went down the tubes because it was just too clear that they're one big lie. They had no legitimacy. And here the Jewish angle is a legitimate one. Now looking back in retrospect, we would say, just let the Jews go, don't tell the others, and just keep it quiet. You know, Russia controls the news. You know, don't tell anybody. Just get them the heck out of there. They won't hear about this anymore. But he couldn't see it that way. You understand? And so the Russians react, the Soviets react by cold hatred. They become convinced of a sinister Zionist conspiracy to overthrow the USSR by subversion. I told you, Brezhnev was looking at the reports of how much matzah is being produced. The, um, they became mortal enemies of Israel. The official Soviet diplomatic position during these years is a return to the 47 borders. Well, that, of course, means the end of Medina Israel. <laughs> right? You know what that means. The 47 borders, which was the UN partition lines, which are indefensible. That was the official position of Russia um, until the 70s. Uh, fascinatingly, however, they do feel bound to some degree uphold the 47 but They didn't say wipe out Israel, which called for a Jewish state. But under Khrushchev and the successors, there was a slow move totally into the Arab camp and did a camp of destruction. So whatever the Russians say, they're in favor of Israel, but by pushing for these borders and supporting the Palestinians and, supporting all, and giving weapons to Nasser and the others, what they really are saying is that don't look at what I say, look at what I do, which is we want to wipe out Israel. 
which is not fun to have the world superpower out for your destruction. Okay? In the long run, this proved counterproductive to the Russians, as the USSR became incapable of successfully negotiating anything concerning the Arab-Israeli conflict, since they had toxic relations with Israel and no real, no real leverage over them. On the other hand, the USA would retain good relations with both sides and could deliver Israel. Jimmy Carter and Nixon, if they were 102 and Reagan, they could you know, threaten Israel to, to, to cut off the money. This made the USA the only superpower capable of playing a dynamic role in the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is our friends Kissinger and Nixon. They're the ones that started that. They took advantage, just like the Russians pressed their advantage of being the popular ones in the Arab world, Nixon and Kissinger began the process, which continued, as we all know, under, um, who was it, under Ford and under uh, Carter and under Reagan and afterwards, in which the only negotiations that count in the, in the Middle East are the ones in America. After all, there's the Camp David negotiations. You didn't care about the Camp Ivan negotiations, right? Because what, what are the Russians going to do? What, what can they say to Israel? So we're your friends or not? Your friends are trying to kill us. You see, so they, they had nothing in there. So the, and the Russians didn't even have diplomatic relations with Israel. They broke them after the 67 war. So who's there to talk to? So America was able to leverage that. This is the world, the great game, as they call it. The politics of one block against the other. The, the Russians leveraged the fact that they were popular in the Arab world by backing the Arabs to destroy Israel. The Americans leveraged the fact that they had relations with Israel, which makes the Arabs, if they want to get anything, have to talk to America in order to get America to turn the, to, the, the screws on Israel. It's a funny world that we live in. This was in the future. For the moment, the entry of the bear into the Middle East was a cause for unrelieved panic by Israel and the USSA. If there's anything that Dulles and Ben-Gurion did agree on, it was that, and this will lay the stage for what we're going to see, which is the uh, weird and crazy events surrounding the Sinai campaign of 1956. But that is for the future. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.